This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Radio Days. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Here we feature mostly cop and detective shows, plus adventure, plus surprise. You never know, but it's the best from the golden age of radio. We'll guarantee that. For those of you who want non-stop crime buster and detective shows, you can now add 1001 Radio Crime Solvers to your podcast library. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. Brand new for 2023 and growing fast. Enjoy! The story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a robbery detail. A pair of bandits are staging a rapid-fire campaign of hold-ups in your city. In 21 days, 11 food markets have been robbed. The hold-ups go on. The suspects are still unidentified. Your job? Get them. Dragnet. The documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department... You will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, September 26th. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Captain Didion. My name's Friday. It was 9.18 a.m. when I got to the record bureau, Lieutenant Cunningham's office. Joe, what's doing? Oh, not too much. Got a job you can do for us, Frank. Like to have it as soon as you can get it out. Oh, what's it about? On these market bandits. We've already gotten out a dozen teletypes and bulletins on them. Like to get out some mimeographs, too, if we can. General distribution, eh? What do you want on them? Well, I better lay out the whole thing for you. A lot of the copies are going to the Retail Grocers Association, all their members. Uh-huh. No luck with those two thieves so far? No. No closer than we were three weeks ago. Figure this ought to plug another loophole. How many copies do you figure you want on this? About a thousand? Yeah, that's fine. That ought to do it. All right. Okay, now what do you want to go in it, Joe? Well, you better lead off with the first job they pulled. That was on the third of this month. Makes it a little better than three weeks now. They hit a supermarket out on Pico. Okay. Got it? Ever since, they've averaged about three jobs a week. We know they're hitting nothing but supermarkets. All of them on main thoroughfares, no small neighborhood stuff. Mm, I got it. So far, they've confined their operations to the 77th Street Division and the county territories, generally the south end of town. They're two men, and they got a pretty well-established M.O. Well-established M.O., okay. They're hitting in the morning hours, usually from the time the markets open up until around noontime. They use a stolen car. Mm-hmm. 95% of the time, a car stolen from the industrial area. Cars they steal for the jobs are always either a Pontiac or a Nash. Uh, yeah. 
We also know they're dropping the stolen cars within a short radius of the holdup scene, about a half a dozen blocks or so. In some instances, they use a second automobile or a public transportation, some kind of bus or streetcar, you know, to make their getaway after they drop the uh, stolen car. I'm sorry. Going a little fast, huh? Yeah. Okay, I got it. Okay. All right, go ahead now. They usually pull up and park directly in front of the market that they're going to hold up. One of the men always remains in the car behind the wheel. Apparently, it's always the same man. Mm, his description? Meager. We know he's good size. MWA. Fairly large build. Here's about the best description we've been able to piece together on the second man. Picked up a little bit from each victim. All right. Uh, second man described as MWA also. About five foot eight inches, medium build, 155 to 160 pounds. Yeah. Always wears a hat. Yeah. Brown suit, rough material of some kind, maybe tweed. Mm. Want to smoke, Frank? Huh? Smoke. Oh, no, no. All right. Uh, when he enters the market for the holdup, the second man always holds a white handkerchief. Holds a white handkerchief to his face as if he's wiping his eyes. Keeps most of his face covered with it during the robbery. He's armed with a nickel-plated revolver, possibly thirty-eight caliber. Mm-hmm. We know the jobs are well-cased because in almost every instance, the suspect goes directly to the manager of the market. Goes directly to the manager. Uh-huh. He hands the manager a brown paper sack, tells him to put the money in it, and then he takes off. So far, he's never attempted any rough stuff, no gunplay. On three occasions, when the suspects got only small amounts of money at one market, they hit again in 15 or 20 minutes at another store in the same general area. Mm-hmm. They never make any attempt to disguise or conceal the license number on the getaway car. As I say, they always abandon the car a short distance from the holdup scene. I see, uh... Okay, I got it. Well, that's about all of it, Frank. I guess you can boil that down into some kind of shape, huh? Yeah, okay. I'll have it typed up in the form. I'll get you a copy before we make the run, see if it's okay with you. Fine, thanks. It's not going so good, huh? No, it isn't, Frank. Pretty slow. I've been on top of the thing for a couple of weeks now. We're still looking for some kind of a break. Mm-hmm. I understand Glenn Chandler from your office took off for some fishing down in Mexico, huh? Yeah. He's not doing bad from what I hear. I got a card from him yesterday. He's down by Keno Bay. Uh-huh. He put the bite on me to send him a dozen martin plugs. Yeah. Fish must be hitting pretty good down there. Oh, that's huh? what he says, yeah. Those big brown sea bass especially. I wouldn't mind getting in a couple of days down there myself. Mm. Excuse me. Yeah. Record Bureau, Cunningham. Yeah, just a minute. You, Joe. Thanks, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Ben. Mm-hmm. Check that for me later, Frank. Might be a little change. What's the matter? Market bandits. They hit again. 9.38 a.m. Ben and I got in the car and drove to the scene of the bandits' latest holdup, a new supermarket out on Slauson near the intersection of South Broadway. After interviewing the manager of the store and all available witnesses to the robbery, there wasn't much doubt about the identity of the suspects. The description and M.O. fitted perfectly with that of the two men who'd been staging a whirlwind campaign of market robberies throughout the south end of the city for the past three weeks. The approach and execution of the holdup was the same in every detail, even to the stolen car they'd used, which was found abandoned a short distance from the robbery scene. There was only one deviation, and it was the first break we'd had in the case since it started. A woman customer at the market, a Mrs. Thomas Swanson, saw the holdup man as he left the store and ran to the getaway car. She told us that the car door apparently stuck when he tried to pull it open and that he took away the handkerchief which he'd held to his face in order to pull the door open with both hands. During those few seconds, she got a good look at him. After taking the crime report and making our preliminary investigation, we brought Mrs. Swanson downtown. 
We had her check through mug books of all recent parolees from the state penitentiary, all ex-convicts with robbery records. After a couple of hours of checking mug shots, she couldn't seem to make positive identification. Very sorry, officer. It just gets a little confusing after a while looking at all these pictures. I did get a good look at the man's face. I just can't settle on one of these pictures, so... Well, from what you did see of him, Mrs. Swanson, the lower part of the man's face especially, can you find a good likeness in any of these? Well, yes, I can find good likenesses for some of his features, but none of them are all together in any one of these pictures here. Like the mouth and chin on this man here. Yes, ma'am. Is that pretty close? Most exactly, I'd say. And then the nose on this one here, it's the very same. Mm-hmm. I just haven't seen any picture that fits them all together. You know what I mean, don't you? Yes, ma'am, I understand. Now, these five pictures here that you've picked out, you'd pretty much say that they incorporate all the features of the man that you saw getting in that That's car. right, officer. This man here, and this one, too. Uh-huh. I'd say the lower part of his face was exactly like that. The small mouth and mustache just like that, and the chin pointed like on this man. And the upper part of his face, would you say it resembled these others here? Yes. These three here, just the upper part. You see, around the eyes, the forehead. I'd say that was very close. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Now, just put the two sets of pictures together, I think you'd have the man perfectly. Sorry, I can't be more help to you. As I say, looking at all these books of pictures, it gets a little confusing. Well, you've given us quite a bit of help, ma'am. Thank you very much. Not at all. Is there anything else? No, thank you. Not right now. We've got your address and telephone. We'll probably be contacting you in a day or two. If you'd like to wait right here, we'll make arrangements to have one of the officers drive you back to your home. All right. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Goodbye, ma'am. We'll be talking to you. Okay, yes. Goodbye, officer. What do you think, Joe? Well, it's more than we had yesterday. Her description's the best we've got on the guy so far. How about getting a composite picture made up from the mug shot she picked up? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You want to duck in and get somebody to drive Miss Swanson home? I want to go in here in the captain's office. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Ben. Friday, how'd you make that? Well, could have been worse, Captain. Woman find anything in the mug books? No positive identification. She picked out five of them she thought were close. I think maybe put off over the crime lab ought to be able to make up a pretty good composite from him. Mm-hmm. Is she fairly positive about the man's description? Yeah, seems to have a clear idea. Good composite ought to help us quite a bit. You get this new description, that mimeograph you haven't made up? No, not yet. I'm going to see Frank about it in a minute. Hi, Skipper. Ben. Got a hold of Jess Gonzalez, Joe. He's going to drive Mrs. Swanson home. Fine. Did you ask him if he checked on that last run we made through the stats office? Yeah, he picked it up. He and Frank Estrada are going to start checking the names this morning. It's not much of a list. Been pretty well picked over already. Mm-hmm. So all you got from the witnesses out there this morning? Description from this Mrs. Swanson? Yeah, that's about it. The rest of it was their usual M.O. Swanson woman was the only one who got a good look at the guy when he took the handkerchief away from his face. How about the getaway car they found? Same as the others. Leighton Prince checked it over. Clean. Well, two thieves had their share of luck when we get ours. How about Metro Division, Captain? Can we get any help out there? What do you got in mind? Well, we know the take that the two thieves got in that job this morning was pretty small for them. $340. Yeah. From their M.O. in the past, we know whenever they get a small take on a job, they usually hit another place fast. They work in a fairly concentrated area down the south end. They only go after big markets on the main thoroughfares. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking if we could get some help from Metro, put... Maybe 15 or 20 crews down in the area for the next couple of days might stand a good chance of grabbing them. We were talking to Dick Tiernan over at the sheriff's office, Skipper. He says he could put some of his men down that area, too. Cover the county on the on the fringes, the territory around there. What do you think? All right, fine. If I can get Stevens at Metro right now, set it up. Figure about 20 crews, is that right? Just about, yeah. With any kind of luck at all, we ought to land them. Well, sure worth a try. Lieutenant Stevens, please. Yeah, Joe, this is Harry Didion. Fine, fine. We've got a little stakeout problem here. How about using some of your men? About 30? 
All right, I'll settle for 25. McKay? Yeah. Yeah, south end of town. Those market bandits. Fine, would you have them report here at robbery 7 o'clock tomorrow morning? All right. Thanks a lot. It's all set. You got 25 men, 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. Okay, Skipper. We'll give you a dozen teams to start with. Gonzalez and Estrada are one more. How many figure working from the sheriff's office? Oh, about four or five teams, I imagine. All right, it's your operation. You two will be in charge on our end. You run the show, you brief the men. If you need anything, call me. Right. How about the overall plan, Skipper? You got any special ideas on it? Just one. Yeah? Get them. 1.18 p.m. We got the revised description of one of the holdup men to Lieutenant Frank Cunningham at the Record Bureau. He told us a thousand copies of the special mimeograph form containing all available information on the two market bandits would be ready for us that night. We met with Sergeant Puttoff, the artist at the crime lab, and he went to work making up a composite picture of one of the suspects from the mugshot selected by the robbery witness, Mrs. Swanson. When the picture was completed, we had Mrs. Swanson check it for similarity to the actual holdup man, and then we brought it back to the record bureau where a thousand copies were made of it. The pictures, along with the mimeograph forms, were sent immediately to the Retail Grocers Association for distribution to all market operators throughout the city. Additional copies of the picture and the information sheet were given to each man who was to work the stakeout when we met in the squad room at 7 o'clock the next morning. Besides the men from Metropolitan Division and the men from robbery who were going to work with us, Lieutenant Dick Tiernan and Sergeant Dave Terry from the Sheriff's Office were also there for the briefing. Well, briefly, that's a rundown on the two suspects and the M.O. they follow. It's the same information and description on them you'll find in those memo forms we handed out. Uh, Joe, you want to take over and give them their assignment? Yeah. Well, if you'll just take a look at this pinup map here for a minute, I'll try and brief you on how the stakeout's going to go. The way we got it figured, anyway. Now, we've worked out a plan we think ought to be the easiest and the best way to work it. If any of you have any suggestions as we go along, we'd sure like to have them. All right, now, as you can see from the map here, the stakeout area is in the south end. It runs from, can you all see it from there? Yeah. Okay. It runs from Santa Fe Avenue over here on the east to Vermont Avenue on the west, running north and south. Now, we'll have to cover from Santa Barbara Avenue on the north down to Manchester. That'll be the southern boundary right there. That's the area the thieves have been working. And we're going to have 14 of our own crews covering that area, and Dick Tiernan and Dave Terry from the sheriff's office will have their men covering adjoining county territory. Now, we've broken the map down into equal units, as you can see here. Each unit will be covered by one car, and each of you will be assigned a unit number. Romero and myself will be in 80K. We'll have a roving unit. We'll cover the entire area. You'll have three-way radios in your car, so you'll be able to contact us directly if you have to. Now, if you'll check the map again, you can see these green pins we've placed here. Well, each one of them represents a market robbery. Now, notice that every one of them is on a main thoroughfare. Okay? Manchester, uh -huh. South Broadway, Vernon, South Hoover. Now, I don't have to tell you that that's where you'll have to keep a sharp watch on the main street. Each of the individual units here on the map will be covered by one car, as I said. Each one's roughly nine blocks square. Now, you'll be responsible for the area assigned to you. We haven't got too much time, so before we go down the list to assign the areas, have you got any questions? Any questions at all? Uh, yeah. Uh, suppose there's a 211 call in somebody else's area. I mean other than the one you're assigned to. Do we leave our area and head over there? No, Jess, I meant to bring that out. If there's a robbery call in somebody else's area, stay put till you get a call to lend a hand. Oh. Anything else? Yeah, how about the managers of these markets? They've been briefed on a stakeout? 
I know we're going to be covering the area. Yeah, they've all been alerted. Now, in case of a holdup, they might try to contact you directly. They'll be looking for you. You'll be looking for them. That it, Bob's at cover for you. <clears throat> Well, yeah, but I'm just wondering about this number two suspect, the one who drives the getaway car. Yeah. Well, it says here in the dope sheet, number one suspect carries a nickel-plated revolver. Now, how about number two? He carry a gun? Well, I wish I could answer that. We don't know. All the information we got on him is on the sheet right there. I see. Well, they never try any rough stuff anyway, do they? No gunplay. They never hurt anyone. No, not yet. Don't let them make you the first. 7.30 a.m. We finished handing out the assignments and the men left to take up their stakeout positions in the south end of the city. Two men to a team, each team in a three-way radio car, each car to patrol a designated nine-square block unit. There were 20 such units within the frame of the overall stakeout area. At the same time, cruiser cars from the sheriff's office, operating on their own radio setup, began patrolling the fringe positions which fell in county territory. Through Control 1 at our communications division, we kept in continual contact with them. 8 a.m., all the cars were in position, each of them patrolling their individual nine-square-block unit. The first two hours passed, no reports, no sign of the market bandits. Between 10 a.m. and noon, half a dozen possible suspects were stopped and questioned by different teams and then brought to the 77th Street Division for processing. All of them were eliminated. The afternoon of the first day went pretty much the same. We had shakedowns on four parked cars in the area and more shakedowns on possible suspects. Nothing materialized. The next morning, Ben and I, along with the other 32 men in the stakeout, picked up where we'd left off. Again, no sign of the suspects, no reports. The morning of the third day, the stakeout detail met in the squad room as usual and then left to take up their regular assigned positions. 7.35 a.m. How about it, Joe? You ready to go? Yeah, just a minute. Okay, let's go. I'll get it. Okay. Robbery, Friday. Yeah. Where? When was that? Yeah, right away. Oh, come on, we gotta hurry. What is it? Market bandits, maybe we got them. 7.50 a.m., Ben and I arrived at the intersection of 58th and San Pedro Streets. Two of our stakeout cruiser cars were pulled up at the southwest corner. One of the teams was Jess Gonzalez and his partner, Frank Estrada. Gonzalez briefed us on what had happened. Victim's the owner of the supermarket down the block in San Pedro. He was walking from his house to the store, and he passed the corner here about 7.35 a.m. Had $340 on him. Uh-huh. Part of yesterday's receipts from the store. They got him right up the street there, took every dollar of it. You sure it was a market bandit? An M.O. description they check out all the way. We had two teams on as soon as we got the word. Located a holdup car a minute ago. Where is it? Down on Avalon Boulevard. Well, how about the sleeves, Jess? Car was empty, no trace of them. a.m. The latest victim of the market bandits, the owner of the supermarket on San Pedro Street, was taken to the 77th Street Division where the crime report was made. He told us that one of the men who robbed him bore a very close resemblance to the composite picture which we'd had drawn up of one of the suspects. We figured we missed grabbing the holdup men by a matter of minutes. Even though some of our units were in the general area at the time of the robbery, it did little good. The victim had delayed reporting the holdup for a full five minutes because the bandits had threatened to find him and kill him if he did. Despite the fact that they'd changed their M.O. to the extent of robbing the store owner on the street instead of in the market proper, 
We had no doubt that the same two men we were looking for had committed the holdup. The abandoned car which they'd used in the robbery was gone over for fingerprints, but it was clean. Meantime, the stakeout went on. Saturday passed. Sunday. Monday. Nothing. No leads on the suspects. Not a trace of them. Tuesday. The same thing all over again. The operation settled down to a dull routine. Tuesday night, we checked the closing of the last market in our stakeout area. 10.45 p.m. Ben and I drove back to the 77th Street Division. Every day seems to get a little longer. These lousy stakeouts sure don't wear very well on me. Yeah, I don't know what the setup's going to be if we don't get a break pretty soon. We can't hang on to the gang from Metro Division forever. Sure has been a bad month. All I need now is a visit from the in-laws. Yeah. I'd do it up fine. You talked to Jess at dinner, didn't you? Yeah. What'd he say about those two men they picked up on South Main this afternoon? They brought them in for processing, checked them out. Couldn't find anything wrong. Both of them clean. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. How about grabbing something to eat after we check out, huh? Okay. Want to stop by Johnny Cokins? What about a French dip sandwich? How's that sound? Haven't had one for a long time. All right, suits me. What was that? Uh-huh. Oh, sorry, I don't. Oh, wait a minute. He just came in. It's for you, Friday. Turn in from the sheriff's office. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Bob. Friday talking. Yeah, Dick. Just now? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll be over right away. I got anything? Market bandits pulled a hold up a couple of minutes ago in a store on Graham Avenue. It's out in county territory. Yeah? One of the sheriff's units took the call, chased the hold-up car two miles. They get the thieves? Well, you're half right. Huh? They got one of them. 10.52 p.m. Ben and I drove to the sheriff's Firestone substation where the market bandit suspect was taken after his apprehension. When we got there, we talked to Deputy Sheriff Sergeants Eddie Jones and Mel Viney, who had made the arrest. They said they arrived at the scene of the holdup, the market on Graham Avenue, a few moments after the bandits pulled away in their stolen Nash sedan. Jones and Viney gave chase, but when they finally forced the holdup car to a halt, the driver was the only one in the car. Somewhere along the route of the two-mile chase, the second robbery suspect had succeeded in jumping out, along with the loot taken in the robbery and making good his escape. A broadcast and the bulletin was gotten out immediately. The holdup suspect they'd apprehended had been fingerprinted, and they were checking on his identification downtown. Ben and I went in to talk to him. Jones and Viney stood by while we questioned him. I still don't know what it's all about. Property clerk will give you an itemized receipt for everything you have on you. Take everything out of your wallet now. Put it out on the table. You're making a pretty big thing out of nothing, aren't you? I haven't done anything. You want to check those things from his wallet, Ben? The cards and some of those papers? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. This your true name on this card here? Grant B. Jameson, is that right? That's right. This your present address? Yeah. You ever been arrested before? Why'd you ask that? It's not going to take too much time to find out. You might as well tell us. We still don't know what this is all about. I was speeding a little, that's all. I haven't done anything. No, you're kidding yourself, Jameson. We got everything on you that we need. What do you think you're going to gain by stalling us? You must have me mixed up with somebody else. I don't know what you're getting at. This card here you took out of your wallet, you recognize it? Why? These names and addresses you've got jotted down on the back of it. Mind checking them out for? I don't know what you mean. Take a look. These here. Whose addresses are they? Who are the people? Let's see. No, I don't think I even remember them. Just something I scribbled down, that's all. You don't even remember one of them? No, I don't think so. Why do you ask? Why don't you come off it, mister? What are you talking about? You know what we're talking about. You know it as well as you know your own name. 
14 robberies down here in 28 days. You're picked up in the hold-up car after the last try tonight. Your partner gets away. Now, you go right on kidding yourself, Jameson. Play it real close. You see how far it gets you. I sure wish I knew what you were talking about. I don't know a thing about any robberies. All right, then you stand by, mister. You're going to know a lot more about them. You're going to know a lot in a hurry. Yeah? Just as soon as we pick up your partner. 12.20 a.m. We continued to question the suspect, Grant Jameson, but he refused to admit anything. Even the fact that he'd stolen the car that he'd been apprehended in. The only strong lead we could pick out from the articles found on his person was the list of four names and addresses jotted on the back of a card found in his wallet. 12.30 a.m. Ben and I left the substation and drove to the address Jameson had told us was his present residence, an apartment house on Vernon Avenue. The manager told us he'd moved at least a year ago without leaving a forwarding address. 1 a.m., we began checking out the list of four names and addresses which we'd found in the suspect's wallet. The first was a Jack Williams. His address, a Spring Street rooming house. The landlady told us he'd moved to Cleveland, Ohio, three months before. The second was a John Gallagher. His address, a third-rate hotel in East Hollywood. He hadn't been registered there in the past two months. The third was a Matthew Sanford. His address turned out to be an apartment house in the Crenshaw district. Want to flash the light on the mailboxes over here, Joe? Yeah. Here you go. You see the name there? Mm, yeah, yeah, here it is. M.L. Sanford. That ought to be it. Apartment 5. All right. Let's try it. Front door open. It's hanging. Yeah, let's go. Uh, number five. Should be down this way, I guess. Mm-hmm. Number five. Okay, let's give it a try. Police officers, you, Matthew Sanford? Get up here. Get it, Ben. All right, come on. Put the gun down. Drop it. I got it, Joe. All right, get your hands out. I'll cover him. Look around, huh? All right. What is this, anyway? What's the idea? You tell us. You pulled the gun. You got no business in here. You got no right. All right, you just stand still. We'll explain it downtown. Money sacks, Joe. Found them in the desk. Same market they hit tonight. All right, Sanford. You got nothing from me. I don't know what you're talking about. Get his coat, will you, Ben? Yeah, all right. What are you trying to build, anyway? You haven't got anything on me? Fourteen robberies, mister. That's what we got on you. You think you got proof? We got it. Yeah? Fourteen victims. Come on, let's go. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. The two market bandit suspects, Grant Burton Jameson and Matthew Roy Sanford, were tried and convicted on 14 counts of first-degree robbery and received sentences as prescribed by law. First-degree robbery is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary from five years to life. You have just heard Dragnet. A series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight in Miami, Florida, a group of men are gathered together for their annual conference. For their day-in, day-out service to the public... Dragnet honors the 58th annual conference of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. 
The story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all king-size cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A wealthy retired businessman suddenly disappears. You've got two possibilities to work on. Suspicion of suicide, suspicion of foul play. There's no lead to the man's whereabouts. Your job? Find him. The latest Fatima sales report shows thousands and thousands of king-size cigarette smokers are switching to Fatima. More and more smokers coast to coast are finding in Fatima the difference is quality. You see, Fatima contains the finest domestic and Turkish tobaccos superbly blended. And Fatima is extra mild with a much different, much better flavor and aroma. You'll find Fatima gives you all the advantages of extra length plus Fatima quality which no other king-size cigarette has. Fatima, best of all king-size cigarettes. Definitely the best quality in its class, but the same price as the cigarette you're now smoking. Next time, insist on the best. Buy king-size Fatima in the distinctive golden yellow package. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, February 6th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out a homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from the record bureau, and it was 11.18 a.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Joe? Hi. she show up yet? Yeah, a couple of minutes ago. She's waiting for us now in the next room. Mm -hmm. Did you talk to her at all? No. Seems to be a nice enough woman. I don't know how much help she's going to be. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Miss Bannon, I'd like to have you meet my partner, Sergeant Friday. Joe, this is Miss Bannon. Hello. I'm sorry I wasn't home when you stopped by yesterday, Sergeant. I got the card you left, though. I called in as soon as I got home. Well, thanks for coming in, Miss Banner. We have a few questions we'd like to ask you. It won't take very long. Right. We have a communication from a Gladys Dillon back in New York, Miss Banner. It's about her brother, a Chester Dillon. We understand you rented his home from him out on Ralston Avenue. Mr. Dillon? Well, yes, I've got a two-year lease on the house. I rented it from him last November. Well, according to the letter we got from Mr. Dillon's sister, she's worried about him. She hasn't heard from him in some time. Do you have any idea where we could contact him? Well, the last I heard, he left on a trip to New York. That was about eight weeks ago, I'd say. Mm -hmm. You see, I usually sent a check for the rent, the apartment he had here. And when he left on his trip, he told me to hold on to the rent checks and he'd collect them when he got back. How long did he say he'd be gone? I don't remember definitely. I think he said four or five months. He didn't leave any forwarding address, any place you could contact him back east? No, he didn't. He just wanted to get away. Didn't want to be bothered with anyone. He wasn't feeling very well. He was very depressed, poor man. Well, why was that, ma'am? Do you know? Well, his wife died just a few months ago, you know. No, ma'am, we didn't know. All we got from his sister was that she hadn't heard from Dillon. She was worrying. She didn't give us any other information. Oh, yes, Mrs. Dillon died in last September, I think it was. Poor man felt terrible about it. 
Couldn't seem to get over it. That's why he rented the house to me. Reminded him too much of her. Yes, ma'am, I understand. Lovely home they have. Mr. Dolan said he really didn't want to rent it, but he couldn't stand being alone in the house. It was a large place, you know. Yes, ma'am. We checked with the people living in the house now. We understand you leased the place to them last month. I subleased it, yes. You see, it just got too big for me. It was nice at first, but it got to be an awful lot of work. I rented it to this family and took a smaller house down the street. Would you happen to know any of Mr. Dillon's friends in the city, Miss Banner? Anyone we could contact who might know where we can locate him? I don't know. He didn't seem to have any friends. He and his wife had only been in the city a year before she died. He was retired, you know. Yes, ma'am. We talked to some of the neighbors out there. They couldn't tell us much about him. Maybe some of the people he did business with might know something. Have you tried the neighborhood bank out there? I know that's where Mr. Dillon had his account. No, ma'am. We haven't yet. Well, I can give you the bank's address. That's about all, though. That's the only contact you know of? I'm afraid so, yes. I didn't know much about Mr. Dillon's private affairs. Whenever I talked to him, it seemed the only thing he had on his mind was his wife's death. Just couldn't seem to get over it. Seemed like he didn't want to get over it. You mentioned that when you leased his home, Mr. Dillon took an apartment. Do you happen to have that address, Miss Banner? Well, I don't have it with me now, but I have it at home. I can call in and give it to you if you like. If you would, please. Certainly. Well, thank you very much, Miss Banner. You have our card. When you hear anything at all from Mr. Dillon, we'd appreciate it if you'd call us. Surely, I'll call you right away. You think something could have happened to him? Well, it's possible. We don't know. All we have is the letter from his sister. It does seem kind of strange, doesn't it? I wasn't feeling too well. I wondered why he hadn't contacted me about sending the rent money to him. He was such a nice man, Mr. Dillon. I certainly hope nothing's happened to him. Well, you say he was very depressed about his wife's death, ma'am. Would you say that it was getting to be a little abnormal with him, maybe? Well, I wouldn't know about that, Sergeant, but I do know he brooded about it all the time. He felt that he'd lost everything. Didn't seem to want to go on. Mm Mm-hmm. Did he ever give an indication that maybe he might take his own life? I mean, all this brooding over his wife? Well, no, nothing definite. Just depressed and moody all the time. Oh, now that I remember it, the last time I saw him, he did say something kind of funny. Yes, ma'am. What was that? It was the day before he left. We were talking about the rent money, and I asked him if I couldn't send it to him. He got kind of a strange look on his face. Yeah. He said, where I'm going, I won't need the money. The day before we called on Lucille Banner for an interview, a letter had been received from a Miss Gladys Dillon in Elmira, New York. Her request was routine. It was one of thousands of similar letters received every year by police departments all over the country. Each one of them has to be worked out to the satisfaction of all parties concerned, the person who's reported missing and the person looking for them. It's an enormous job requiring thousands of man hours annually. Like the dozens of other investigations handled by the police officer, some of them end happily, some of them in tragedy. Whatever the result, the finding of a lost person is just as important a function of your local police department as any other investigation. Gladys Dillon hadn't heard from her brother recently. She was worried about him. She asked us to investigate. Our initial interview with Lucille Banner, the woman who'd rented Chester Dillon's home, failed to yield much of a lead as to his whereabouts. The only source of additional information she could offer was the neighborhood bank where Dillon had his account. One o'clock that afternoon, Ben and I drove out to interview the manager of the bank, a Mr. Harrison. Yes, that's right. Mr. Dillon's had his account with us ever since he came to Los Angeles. I know him quite well. Is there something you'd like to know about him? Yes, sir, there is. We had a request from his sister in New York. She'd like to locate him. Well, I'm pretty sure his account's still open here. Matter of fact, I'm positive it is. This moment, I'll have one of the clerks get his file. All right, thank you, Mr. Harrison. Hey, that reminds me, I almost forgot. Yeah, what's that? I've got to get to the bank tomorrow for sure. Payment on my car's a day past due already. Only got two payments left. Mm-hmm, you're doing fine. 
I got another eight months to go. Not so fine. Two more payments to go, and now the wife wants a new one. Never fail. Yeah. Here we are, Sergeant, just as I thought. Mr. Dillon's account is still open. Uh-huh. Have there been any recent deposits or withdrawals on the account? Mm-hmm. Let's have a look here. Uh-huh. Just as I thought, nothing since he left on his trip. That last withdrawal date was November 27th. He mentioned to you that he was going on a trip, did he? Yes, I think he said he was going back to New York. More or less a vacation trip. His wife died recently. He didn't take it too well. Yes, we understand. Did he leave any instructions about his account with you, Mr. Harrison? Any address you could contact him at if you had to? No, he didn't leave any instructions with me. No address. Just a vacation trip. He said he didn't expect to be gone too long. Did he mention how long it would be? Five or six weeks, I think that's what he said. I happened to talk to him about it because at the time he made quite a sizable withdrawal. I thought maybe he was a little unhappy with our service. Mm-hmm. How much was the withdrawal, sir? Let's see. And here it is, November 27th. He withdrew $2,400. Was that in cash or in traveler's checks? Do you know that? Mm-hmm. Well, it shows here that it was in cash. Mr. Harrison, you said a minute ago that you knew Mr. Dillon pretty well. Yes, that's right. He used to stop and chat with me whenever he'd come in the bank. That was usually once a week. I didn't know him socially, though. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned he seemed to take his wife's death pretty hard. Uh, what would you say his mental condition was last time you saw him? All right, I'd say. Just after his wife's death, he wasn't in very good shape. Brooded about it quite a bit. And he began to pull out of it. Seemed to be in a fairly good frame of mind. Planned his vacation. Was looking forward to it. I see. Why do you ask? Is something wrong? No, sir, not that we know of. Routine check. That's about the size of it. Does Dylan have any other real estate besides the house on Ralston Avenue? Would you happen to know that? Mm, not to my knowledge, no. He has no other business connections in Los Angeles. Here are all his references right here. Mm-hmm. See, most of them are charge accounts and so forth. I remember the time he opened his account with us, he told me he was retired. He and his wife came out here for their help. Do you have any relatives out here? Do you know, Mr. Harrison? No, from what I understand, both of their families are in the East. They don't have any children, according to his application. Very few relatives. Mm-hmm. And since Dylan was in here last November to make that withdrawal, you've had no communications from him at all, is that right? No, sir, I haven't. What seems to be the trouble? Do you have an idea something might be wrong? Nothing definite, no, sir. We've been told about his feeling depressed over his wife's death, and there was some indication he might possibly have done away with himself. After what you've told us, it doesn't seem too likely. I don't know. I wouldn't like to commit myself. As I say, he did seem to be getting over it. I didn't know him that well, though. Might be entirely possible. He was devoted to Mrs. Dillon. Maybe he could have taken his own life. I don't know. Well, it leaves a big question to answer, doesn't it? What's that? Why do you need the $2,400 to do it? 1.25 p.m. We continued interviewing the bank manager, Mr. Harrison, but he was unable to come up with any further leads. Before we left the bank, he gave us a complete list of all of Chester Dillon's references. We gave him our card, and he told us he would pass along immediately any information he might get on the whereabouts of Mr. Dillon. 1.45. We went back to the office where we got a call from Lucille Banner. She gave us Dillon's last known address, and we drove out to check it. It was an apartment court in the Pico Crenshaw area. We talked to the manager, and she told us that Dillon had moved out three months before, on November 22nd. He told her that he was moving in with a close friend of his, and he gave her his forwarding address. It turned out to be a single-story frame cottage located in one of the older residential districts of the city. The name on the mailbox read Raymond L. Schaefer. We rang the bell, and a man who identified himself as Raymond Schaefer ushered us into a small living room. He told us that he was from the same town in the east that the Dillons came from and that he was a longtime friend of theirs. No, I haven't seen Chester for months. Last November, I think it was. That was the last time I saw him. 
You say at that time Dylan was living in the apartment down in the Crenshaw area, Mr. Shaver. Yeah, that's right. You mean he never came here to live with you? No, it's just like I told you before. He talked about moving in here with me, but he never did. I haven't any idea where he is. Well, he gave your name here as a forwarding address, Schaefer. Have you been getting his mail? Yeah, matter of fact, I have. He told me he was going to do that. Never came to pick it up, though. Seemed funny to me. You're still getting his mail here, is that right? Yeah, it's still coming. Not much of it. Maybe a letter a week. Mostly bills and advertisements. Mm -hmm. This list of names you've given us, sir, these are all the people in the East Mr. Dillon was acquainted with? People he might contact on his trip back there, is that right? That's all of them. As far as I know, he hadn't been back there yet, though. How do you know that? I got a letter from my sister Gert a couple of days ago. If Chester was in town, Gert would have known about it. He would have been sure to stop by and see her. I wish I could help you. Tell you the truth, I'm getting a little worried about him myself. Well, you just have one more question, Mr. Shaver. Do you know if Mr. Dillon was in the habit of carrying large sums of money around with him? No, I don't think so. Chester was pretty cautious that way. He wasn't too free with a dollar, you know. Would you happen to know if he had a large sum of money with him the last time you saw him? No, if he did have, he didn't mention it. I see. You can't think of anything else that might give us a lead on Mr. Dillon's whereabouts, anything at all? I think I've told you everything. I wish there was something I could tell you that it helped. I sure hope nothing's happened to him. Yes, sir. Now, would you mind showing us that mail you're holding for Dillon, please? Oh, sure, sir. Right over here. It's in the desk. There you are. That's all of it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Anything, Joe? No, not much. Bills, circulars. There's one with a New York postmark. Elmira, probably from his sister. Another one, only three days old, from the Union Department store. A couple more earlier dates on it. That's about it. Yeah, I'll copy down the return addresses on it. Fine. Mr. Schaefer. Yeah? This suitcase by the desk here, initials on it. CLD. Yeah? CLD, is that your bag, Schaefer? Oh, no, I forgot to tell you. Chester left that here one day. Hmm? How was that? Well, that was one day just before he was going to leave on his vacation. Uh, he brought it over here and said he'd like to leave it with me. Forgot to mention it to you. Mm-hmm. Did you bring anything else with him? Yeah, he brought another suitcase with him, just like this one. I got it in the other room. He said he wanted to leave him here while he was on his vacation. I'm sorry I forgot to mention it. Well, maybe you forgot something else, Schaefer. What? Most people take their suitcases on a trip, don't they? 2.30 p.m. We continued questioning Raymond Schaefer. We opened the two suitcases labeled with the initials of Chester Dillon and found an assortment of personal items which Schaefer told us belonged to Dillon and his late wife. Small pictures, cigarette boxes, books, similar articles, which apparently would not be taken on a vacation trip. None of them were of any great value. After we left Schaefer's home, we checked him through R&I and found he had no criminal record. We checked further with friends and acquaintances of both men and found nothing to indicate that Schaefer was in any way involved in the disappearance of Chester Dillon. 3.30 p.m. We called the office and found that there'd been no answer so far to the broadcast and missing persons bulletins that we'd gotten out on Dillon. We started checking the references given us by the bank. First was the Union Department store. It was located on Main Street in the south end of town. We checked with the credit department to see what information we could get from them. Yes, here's the file on the Dillons right here. Chester L. and Sarah J. on Ralston Avenue. Yes, ma'am, that's the one. What information would you like, sir? Well, we're trying to locate Mr. Dillon, ma'am. Have you had any recent change of address on that account? No, we haven't. If they moved, you know. Well, we believe so. We don't know his present address, though. Hmm. Well, we do have an outstanding bill of theirs, I noticed. Sent them several form letters. We've been trying to contact them ourselves. Have there been any recent charges on that account, do you know? Mm, let's see. Nothing too recent, no. Last charge was made on December 5th. 
Yes, Thursday, December 5th. Mm. That's a couple of weeks after he disappeared, Joe. Yeah, that's right. What was that charge for, ma'am? What did Mr. Dillon buy? Oh, Mr. Dillon didn't buy anything. Beg your pardon? The slip was signed by Mrs. Dillon. You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. If you smoke king-size cigarettes, listen to Fatima's amazing new offer. Buy a pack of Fatimas. Enjoy their extra mildness and superbly blended tobaccos. If you don't like Fatimas better than the king-size cigarette you are now smoking, return the pack with the unused Fatimas and we'll give you your money back, plus postage. We make this amazing offer because we believe Fatima is the best of all king-size cigarettes. Smokers all over the country are confirming this every day. Here is the latest state-by-state report. State 1, Fatima sales up 72%. 2, sales up 54%. 3, sales up 107%. 4, sales up 192%. And those are just a few. Remember, if you're not convinced Fatima is better than your present king-size cigarette, just return the pack with the unsmoked Fatimas before December 1st and get your money back plus postage. Fatima, Box 37, New York 1. Buy Fatima. Best of all, king-size cigarettes. Four fifteen p.m., Thursday, February 7th. As soon as the clerk in the credit department at the Union Department Store showed us the sales slip with the late Mrs. Sarah Dillon's signature on it, we had the date on the sales slip double-checked immediately. The date as shown on the slip was correct beyond any doubt, December 5th. That was a little more than two and a half months after Sarah Dillon had died. Who the person was who forged her signature or why they'd forged it, we had no idea. The amount of the charge purchase as shown on the sales slip was for $418, all of it for women's clothing. We attempted to check with the salesgirl who handled the purchase, Alora Van Kirk, but we were told it was her day off. We called her home. They told us that she was gone for the day and couldn't be located. They said she'd be at work the following morning. 4.40 p.m., Ben and I took the sales slip with a forged signature on it and drove back to the office. We went directly to forgery detail, briefed them on our findings, and gave them the sales slip. Then we drove back to the home of the Dillon's friend, Raymond Schaefer, and checked through the two suitcases there. We came up with a small photo of Mrs. Dillon along with exemplars of her handwriting, as well as her husband's, which we found in an autograph album in one of the suitcases. The handwriting samples were checked against the signature on the sales slip, but neither of them matched. The work of compiling a list of all known female forgery suspects was begun immediately. The following morning, Ben and I went back to the Union Department store where we interviewed the sales girl, Laura Van Kirk, who'd handled the purchase. Yes, I remember making the sale, officer. I'm not too sure about the woman who bought the things, though. I, I mean, what she looked like. Well, could you try to describe her for us, Miss Van Kirk, just as well as you can remember? She had light brown hair. I'm pretty sure of that. Not too old. Maybe in her late 30s, early 40s. She was a plain-looking woman, five foot five or six, thin, as I remember. She wore glasses. I remember that, too. I see. You got that picture of Miss Dillon there, Ben? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, here you are. Would you take a look at this picture, Miss? Now, does that look like the woman you waited on? No. No, that's not her. The woman I waited on was much younger. She had light brown hair, too, not gray. Uh-huh. Thin face, I think. And she wore glasses, I'm sure of that. 
Do you remember if there was a man with her, Miss Van Kirk, or was she alone? No, she was alone. Now that I remember, there was something very different about the glasses she wore. I don't know if that's important or not. What about her glasses? They were horn-rimmed, as I remember, very light color. And there was some metalwork along the top edge of the frame. Very smart-looking. Gold metal all along the top. Light brown hair, slight bill, thin face, late 30s or early 40s. Were light horn-rimmed glasses and gold metal on the frame. Yes, that's right. Check me if I'm wrong, Joe. That description sound familiar? Just what I was thinking. Horn-rimmed glasses, metal work on them. The woman who came to see us at the office? Yeah, you got it. Lucille Banner. Ben and I went back to the office and had Lucille Banner checked through R&I. She had no criminal record. Then we drove to the home on Ralston Avenue, which Chester Dillon had leased to Lucille Banner, and which she in turn had sublet. We obtained a copy of the lease which the Banner woman had with the current tenants and which bore her signature. We brought the copy of the lease downtown, gave it to Don Meyer in handwriting, and asked him to compare Lucille Banner's signature with the signature on the sales slip that we'd obtained from the Union Department store. Fifteen minutes later, he called us at the office with a result. Yeah, Don. Mm-hmm. Is that so? You're right. Thanks a lot. What do you get? Says there's no question in his mind. Yeah. Both signatures match perfectly. What the reason was behind Lucille Banner's forging the signature of Mrs. Dillon on the sales slip, we didn't know. Whether or not it had any connection with the disappearance of Chester Dillon, we didn't know. As soon as we got the handwriting report from Don Meyer, Ben and I left the office immediately and drove to the bungalow which the Banner woman was renting on Ralston Avenue. It was a block down the street from the Dillon house. Lucille Banner wasn't at home, but a neighborhood gardener trimming the lawn in front of her house told us that she was expected back shortly. The gardener who identified himself only as Julio, volunteered that he also did gardening work for Miss Banner when she occupied the Dillon home. He'd also worked for the Dillons when they lived in the house. He told us he liked the Dillons quite a bit, but that he didn't have much use for Miss Banner. He seemed to be up on all the news in the neighborhood. He trimmed the hedges of the lawn with hand shears as we talked to him. Can you tell us anything about Mr. Dillon and Miss Banner, Julio? How'd they seem to get along, you know? They get along all right, I guess. When I worked at the big house down there for Miss Banner, that's before she moved, I would see Mr. Dillon there. He would be at the house maybe once, two times a week. Miss Banner would ask him to come over and cook dinner for him. Mm-hmm. Miss Banner likes him, I think. Mr. Dillon, I don't know about him. He wasn't feeling so good. Still thinking about his wife. Here, I finish up this clipping now. There, all done. You mentioned you don't like Miss Banner very much, Julio. Why is that? She ever give you a reason not to like her? Yeah, she's a little crazy, I think. Funny woman. When I used to work at the big house for her in the garden, she would watch me all the time, follow me all around, tell me to do all kind of crazy jobs. She give me good pay, though, so I do them. How do you mean, Julio? What kind of crazy jobs? The compost box for fertilizer, you know. She wanted me to build one for her in the backyard. That was down the street at the Dillon house. Mm-hmm. Crazy woman. She wanted me to build a compost box in the greenhouse. Have a special place, Mark, for whoever heard of that, to build a compost box inside a greenhouse. Crazy. Well, did you build it for her? Yes, but not inside the greenhouse. I built it outside, right next door to the greenhouse. When she come outside, she'd go crazy almost, call me names. Crazy. She made me tear it up. Then she made me build it inside the greenhouse, right on the place she had marked for it. Sounds queer, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. When did all this happen, Julio? Do you remember? When you built the compost box, I mean. A couple of months ago about that. It was just after Mr. Dillon went away. I tried to tell Miss Banner, who ever heard of a compost box in a greenhouse? She wouldn't listen. She had to have it built in a certain place, right in the greenhouse, a little piece of ground in there. The box had to go right on top of it. Uh-huh. You figure she acted pretty strange about it, do you? You think she had something there, a little piece of ground. You think she had something to hide. 
1.15 p.m. Lucille Banner returned home, and Ben and I went inside the house with her where we questioned her in the living room. Outside in the front yard, the gardener, Julio, continued working on the lawn. Lucille Banner was calm and composed. We questioned her about the forged signature on the sales slip. She would admit nothing. The whole thing's too silly to even comment on. I don't know what you're talking about, Sergeant. We think you do, Miss Banner. Our handwriting man's checked the two signatures, one on the sales slip and one on the lease. They both match. They were written by the same person. There's no doubt about it. Been checked thoroughly. Now, what about it, Miss Banner? There's no way out of it. You ought to know that. I'll deny it. That's all. I'll keep on denying it. I wasn't in that store and I didn't forge any signatures. Why would I do a thing like that? What kind of a woman do you think I am? Well, all we know are the facts, ma'am. Now, why don't you give us a straight story? It's going to save time and trouble for everybody concerned. You've heard everything I've got to say. This thing's ridiculous. It's stupid. I'm not answering any more questions. You want to get your hat and coat, Miss Banner? Afraid you'll have to come downtown with us. What good's that going to do? I'll just keep on denying it. You can't make me say I did a thing like that. You want to get your coat, please? It's right here. All right. Yes, ma'am. Car's right out in front. Hold it a minute, will you, Ben? Mm, yeah, okay. Julio? Yes, Can sir. See you a minute? Sure. Hello, Miss Bonner. Julio? Favor, I'd like to ask of you, Julio. You got a couple of minutes to spare? Yeah, you want something? We want to take a look in the backyard of the house down the street. Mr. Dillon's house. I'd like to have you come along with us, Julio. It won't take very long. Sure, okay. I'll come along. And bring a shovel along, will you, Julio? I'd like to check something. Yeah, okay. I bring one. Fine. All right, Miss Banner. What's this about? What are you trying to do? Something we want to check in the Dillon's backyard. It won't take long. What would it have to do with me? I don't have anything to do with that house. I don't even live there anymore. You realize that, don't you? Yes, ma'am. We realize it. I'll call my lawyer. I'll call him as soon as I get to a phone. Yes, ma'am. Julio? Back this way, Sergeant. Through the gate. Mm -hmm. What are you trying to do to me? You know I don't live here anymore. I don't even have anything to do with this place. You did live here, ma'am. You lived here when Mr. Dillon disappeared. Isn't that right? What are you trying to say? You've got no business on this property. You've got no business here at all. Yes, ma'am, we have. What? Did you kill Jester Dillon? Did you kill him? Miss Bennett? All right, Julio, the compost box in the greenhouse. Do you want to start digging? In the compost box? Yeah, okay. He was an old man. So old he was sick. Ma'am? He didn't want to live anymore. He didn't have any reason for living. Why shouldn't he give me the house? Why shouldn't I have his money? I was nice to him. I cooked for him. Wanted to take care of him. He just didn't want to live anymore, that's all. All right, Julio, you can hold it up. You want to tell us, ma'am? He needed a woman. Anybody could tell that. He needed me. We got along fine, Chester and me. I offered to marry him, and he wouldn't do it. All he could do was think about his wife. She was dead. He'd sit around and talk about her all the time. You killed him. Is that what you're trying to say? He wanted to marry Chester and take care of him. He wouldn't do it. He had an argument in the kitchen one night. I had a gun, and I killed him. I killed him. Is that where you buried him? In the greenhouse? Yes, I buried him deep. The gun, too. He'll be all right. Poor Chester. Yeah. He was so old. He needed a woman. Anyone will tell you that. He needed me. Well, I guess you made a mistake. No, Sergeant. He did. Yeah? He didn't want me. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 2nd, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 86, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. And now here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you. 
Friends, during the past couple of years, we've had many talks with law enforcement agencies and received hundreds of letters from police officers all over the country. We're especially pleased to know that so many of these men feel as we do that Fatima is the best of all king-size cigarettes. As a matter of fact, our sales reports prove beyond a doubt that more and more smokers everywhere are switching to Fatima. When you buy your first pack, you'll understand why. You'll enjoy Fatima's extra mildness, their much better flavor and aroma. Next time, look for the golden yellow package and ask for Fatima. Best of all, king-size cigarettes. Lucille Marie Banner was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. She received the sentence as prescribed by law. She is now serving a life term in the state penitentiary for women, Tehachapi, California. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all king-size cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Stay tuned for Counter-Spy, next on NBC. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Radio Days. Your home for the best of Golden Age Radio, when radio was king. If you enjoyed tonight's show, please do take a moment and send us a review. We always appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners find us. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon at 1001 Radio Days. And one note, don't forget to pick up 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.